0: Hi, and welcome to the study of God's Word from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Wenton, California. Look with me, if you will, to the book of Philippians, chapter 1. And yes, we're still in verse 1. You will recall that the Apostle Paul was in prison in Rome when he wrote this letter. It's a letter to a church that he dearly loved. And in this letter, he encouraged the church to stand firm in the face of opposition And persecution. And I would encourage you to hear the words of the Apostle Paul because those days are coming to us as well. He encouraged the church to stand firm in the face of opposition and persecution, he encouraged the church to remain united in spirit and in humility before the Lord and before each other. And he encouraged the church to be faithful in declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ to the people of the city of Philippi. He also warned the church. He warned them against lapsing into legalism holding to the letter of the law and forgetting the spirit of love. He warned them about becoming lawless like the culture that they found themselves in. He warned them about becoming weak in faith by worrying about the things Of the world. But this is not just a letter of encouragement and a letter of warning. The purpose of this letter was to inspire the Philippian church to remain joyful in the Lord in all things to maintain that joy in the Lord, no matter what they faced, no matter what their situation may be, no matter what they're going through physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, privately, corporately. And in this letter, the apostle gives us insight on how that joy can be maintained in an individual who is going through, or a church that's going through, difficult trials. And that's why I've encouraged you to read the book of Philippians every week while we're in this study. And since most of you know that we'll probably be in this study until the cows come home, you most likely will have the entire book memorized by the time we're done. But that's a good thing. Rejoice in the Lord always, the apostle said. And again, I say rejoice Philippians chapter 4 and verse 4. Well, we've talked about a lot of things in the three sermons leading up to this, but we haven't really defined what joy is. And we've compared it to happiness, but we haven't really defined what joy is, and so I want to do that this morning. Joy is as we define it in our culture, in our day, joy is defined as an emotion that's produced by success or good fortune or the prospect of possessing what one desires. It is an emotion that's produced by success by good fortune or by the prospect of possessing what one desires. It means it's defined as delight. And in our culture, we often use joy as a synonym for happiness. Oftentimes when we talk about joy, people understand I'm joyful. Well, that means I'm happy. Or, if I'm happy, that means I'm joyful. But biblical joy can't be defined like that. Biblical joy, Christian joy, scriptural joy, is a state of being. Not a state of mind, but a state of being. It's a state of being, of Calm, delight. Calm, delight. In other words, it's not supercilious. It's not the tiptoe through the tulips type of stuff that we're accustomed to thinking of. Calm, delight. A deep-seated satisfaction and contentment. A deep-seated satisfaction and contentment. Do you have joy this morning? Do you have joy this morning? Biblical joy. And we need to understand this. Biblical joy is choosing. It's making a choice. It's choosing to respond to situations peacefully, with contentment, With satisfaction, knowing that all things work together for the good to those who love God, to the called according to His purpose. You may not necessarily be happy about the situation that you're in, but if you know that God can use the situation that you're in to His glory and to your benefit then you have joy you may not i was going to say you may you may not have the desire to jump over pews some of us don't even have the ability to do that the joy joy doesn't respond to situations out of pure emotion Joy responds to situations with a calm assurance, with a deep-seated contentment and satisfaction that no matter what it is I am going through today, God is sovereign and He will work this situation out for His glory and for my benefit. That's what joy is. That's what joy is. A couple of things about joy. Before we get into the text itself, understand that joy is a gift from God. You can't create this. Joy is a gift from God. In Psalm chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, the psalmist writes, You have put gladness in my heart. You have put gladness in my heart more than the seasons that their grain and wine increase. I will both lie down in peace and sleep for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. You put the gladness in my heart. David in his penitent psalm, not this David, but King David, in his penitent psalm, Psalm 51, verses 10, 11, and 12, he cries out to the Lord, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit joy is a gift from god and if you do not have joy this morning dear friends what you should be about is praying god give me that gift of joy he may not give you the gift of preaching thank god for that He may not give you the gift of teaching. He may not give you the gift of tongues or interpretation. He may not give you the gift of hospitality or of uh, exceptional faith. He may not give you the gift of generosity. But He will give you the gift of joy. If you ask Him, He will give you the gift of joy. Second, Joy is a product of the indwelling Holy Spirit. If you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit living in you, and the result of that Holy Spirit living in you, one of the aspects, one of the benefits of the Holy Spirit living in you is joy. In Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, the Apostle Paul writes that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy. Joy peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. You have the Holy Spirit, you have joy, but maybe you haven't exercised that joy. Maybe you haven't acknowledged that joy. Maybe you have not been allowing the Holy Spirit to that joy to well up within you. And so Paul wrote to the Philippians in chapter 1, verse 1, you have it there in front of you, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with bishops and deacons. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ to all the saints in Christ Jesus. Jesus we're going to look at those three words this morning in Christ Jesus I want to explore with you this morning what it means to be in Christ Jesus First of all understand that in Christ Jesus is positional It is positional The word in expresses location You're in the sanctuary this morning. That's where you're located. Some of you are not in the sanctuary this morning. You may be in your own home. That's where you're located. God only knows where you're going to be this afternoon. But wherever it is, that's where you're at. It is location. To be in Christ Jesus is positional. It means to be located in. It indicates a fixed position. A fixed position in time, a fixed position in place, and a fixed position in status. At this particular time, you're in the sanctuary. That's also your fixed position insofar as location is concerned. But the question is, are you in Christ Jesus this morning? If you're in Christ Jesus, that means you're saved. We'll get to that in a minute. But if you're not a Christian, if you're not saved, then you're not in Christ Jesus. You're still in the world. You're still in the flesh. You're still in the snare of the devil. In Christ Jesus fixes your position in who Jesus Christ is and all that Jesus Christ does. This is illustrated in John chapter 15, verses 4 through 6. And you may remember this passage as being Jesus' exposition on the vine and the branches. And it indicates Clearly what it means to be in Christ Jesus. He says, abide in me. Now the word abide means to live or to dwell. To continue to live or to continue to dwell in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Now, this is an agricultural area, and we're all familiar with almond orchards and peach orchards and uh, with um, vineyards. We have them all around us here, walnut orchards as well. And we all understand the dynamic of what Jesus is talking about here. In a few weeks, the trees are going to start to bud. And after the buds will come the blooms. And after the blooms will come the fruit. And that happens because the branches that produce those buds and then blooms and then fruit are plugged into the main tree. They're part of the tree but they can be severed from the main tree and they will wither and die. As long as they remain in the tree, in the trunk of the tree, in the main part of the tree, they will live because they draw their life from the main tree that draws its nutrients from the roots in the ground. The branch cannot live by itself. Now, I know it can if you take it and plug it into the ground and you do this, that, and the other. You can stimulate growth. But I'm, I'm trying to talk in simple terms here. You go out into the orchard, you go out into the vineyard, and you cut off a, a branch and you cast it aside, it dies. Jesus is saying the same thing. Abide in me. Live and dwell in me and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. What does it mean to be in Jesus, in Christ Jesus? The same thing that it means for a branch to be in the main vine. For a branch to be in the main part of the tree. There are some dynamics involved in being in Christ Jesus. Don't have time to go through all of them. Let me just pick a few out for you this morning. First of all, to be in Christ Jesus is to be spiritually alive. To be spiritually alive. Now we have to understand this because most of us are not aware of what that is. Every person who's ever been born except one. Every person who's ever been born has been born with a sinful nature, making that person spiritually dead. Spiritually dead. You're alive physically. You're alive mentally. You're alive emotionally. But you're born spiritually dead because of a a sinful nature that you've inherited from our first parents, Adam and Eve. Until the Holy Spirit of God awakens your spirit to God and to the things of God, you will remain spiritually dead. You will remain condemned in sin and you will be separated from God forever in hell. But in Christ Jesus, you are made spiritually alive. That part of who you are, that part of the soul that you are, is awakened by the Holy Spirit of God that you might understand who God is. You might understand the things of God. You might appreciate the things of God. And then you will begin to have a relationship with God because you are no longer spiritually dead. You are now spiritually alive in Christ. That's all the work of the Holy Spirit in you. In Ephesians chapter 2, let's take a look at that. You're in Philippians, you turn right, no, you turn left, you turn left. One book to Ephesians chapter 2, and I want you to look at verses 1 through 5. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Now understand what the Apostle Paul is saying here. Don't just look at words. Understand what he's saying. He says, and you he made alive. You do not become spiritually alive on your own. And you do not become spiritually alive by any association that you have with religious people or a church, or a denomination, or any ethical, moral activity or religious activity that you may be engaged in. Notice the apostle is very specific here. He made you alive. You cannot become spiritually alive to God, except God, through His Holy Spirit, makes you spiritually alive. And you he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of the world, according to the prince of the power of the air. Who is that? That's Satan. That's Satan. So understand what he's saying here God has made you alive because you were once dead in trespasses and sin and you lived, you walked according to the course of the world you lived your life according to the culture according to the mores of the world according to the principles of the world you walked according to Satan the prince of the power of the air The spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath just as others. But God, but God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses and sin, made us alive together with Christ. To be in Christ Jesus is to be spiritually alive. Unless the Holy Spirit of God awakens your spirit to the things of God, you will never know Him. You'll know about Him because you read about Him and you hear other people's talk about Him, but you will never know Him personally. You will never have fellowship with Him, nor will you ever enjoy eternal life with Him. To be in Christ Jesus is is to be made spiritual alive. Christ Jesus lives in you and you live in Him. There's a second dynamic and that is to be in Christ Jesus is to be saved. It is to be saved. A lot of misconceptions about what salvation really is. But I'm going to give you the skinny on what the Bible says salvation is. I really don't care what Baptists say salvation is or Presbyterians or Methodists or Catholics or anybody else. I'm concerned with what the Bible has to say about what salvation truly is. In Romans chapter 3, verse 23 through 26... The Apostle Paul writes, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. If a person is saved, genuinely saved, biblically saved, that person is in Christ Jesus, and Christ Jesus is in that person. Redemption, because that's what the Apostle Paul spoke of here, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Redemption is another word for salvation. Redemption is in Christ Jesus, which means you cannot be saved apart from Christ Jesus. You cannot be saved without Christ Jesus. You can only be saved in Christ Jesus because salvation is in Christ Jesus. Listen, friends, the church cannot save you. The church cannot save you. And I don't know what your experiences may have been, I don't know what your theology may have been, I don't know what folks have told you. But the church cannot save you. The ordinances, the sacraments, the dogma, the doctrine or the orthodoxy of the church can never save a human soul. Never. Neither can your good works, your ethics, your morality, your race, your nationality, your sex, your sincerity, or your good intentions. These things cannot save you. As a matter of fact, my friend, if you do not know Jesus Christ, if you're not saved, you're spiritually dead. You can't do anything that pleases God anyway. You can't do anything to save yourself if you're spiritually dead. Understand that. If you're spiritually dead, there is only one way that you can be made spiritually alive, and that's when the Holy Spirit works in you to open your heart, to open your eyes, to open your ears, and to open your understanding as to who God is. And through that process, He places you in Christ Jesus. And He, who represents Christ Jesus, lives and dwells in you. Church can't touch that. And anything and everything that you think you are and think you can do, can't touch that. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, a very familiar passage of Scripture, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift from God, not of works, lest any man should boast. We are saved by Jesus Christ. To be saved is to be in Christ Jesus. But there's a third dynamic. To be in Christ Jesus is to be a new person. And I want you to hear me here because we get this all backward as well. To be in Christ Jesus is to be a new person. A new person. 2 Corinthians 5.17, I cite this passage again and again and again because some of you still don't get it. The Apostle Paul wrote to a very troubled church, a very sinful church, a church filled with individuals, some of them leaders, who were involved in or who gave a wink of the eye to gross immorality in the fellowship. And he wrote to them and he said, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. Now what does that mean? It means if you are in Christ Jesus, if you are indeed a Christian, then the old life that you lived before becoming a Christian, that's gone. That's gone. You have a new life now. And the technical term that the Apostle Paul uses here, he says you are a new creation, really it means you're a new creature. You are a new person. God has, in Christ Jesus, recreated you from the inside out. You're not the same person you used to be. And the reason that that concerns us is because there are far too many people in religious circles who claim to be Christian but live like the world. There hasn't been any departure from the life that they had formerly. They're still garbage mouth. They're still immoral. Their values suck. Their attitudes are deplorable. And their lifestyle is such that if they you that they were a Christian, you wouldn't have known otherwise. Paul says in Christ Jesus you are a new person. You're not the old person you used to be. The old has passed, the new has come. What's the new? Well God has given you a whole new set of values. God has given you a new attitude. God has given you Purpose and meaning in your life. He's established within you certain principles that guide you and guard you in your daily life. You have new desires. You don't desire the old things anymore. You have new goals. You're no longer living for me. You're living for Jesus. And in fact, dear friends, in Christ Jesus, a person's entire lifestyle changes. The entire lifestyle changes. So those are just a few dynamics of what it means to be in Christ Jesus positionally. But secondly, to be in Christ Jesus is relational. It's not just positional. It is also relational. Turn to Galatians chapter 3. You're in Ephesians, so turn back one book. Chapter 3, and we're going to begin in verse 26. Galatians chapter 3, verse 26 and following. Paul here is talking to a group of churches in the province of Galatia. And at the very beginning of the letter, you get the idea of where Paul is going with this letter. This church has, has become very, very weak in the faith because they have turned their attention away from Christ and they have turned their attention toward the popular um, attitudes, uh, philosophies, and so on and so forth of the culture that those churches are located in. Paul says, you've been deceived... Paul says, I'm amazed that you have turned away from Christ so quickly, so soon. He says, I'm amazed that you have been bewitched by the devil into thinking certain things are true when they're not true. And so in this letter, he is writing to these churches in the province to kind of straighten them out theologically uh, about what being in Christ Jesus really means. Now notice in verse where did I say we were at? Yes, verse, uh, three, chapter, chapter 3, beginning in verse 26. For you are what? Huh? You are what? Are you in Galatians chapter 3, verse 26? Huh? For you are sons of God and if you're female you're still a son of God no you are the children of God you're the sons and daughters of God for you are all sons of God through faith what? in Christ Jesus for as many of you as were baptized into Christ, having put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to promise. Look at all of the ways in which Paul underscores the relationship that we have with God in Christ Jesus. You are the children of God You are baptized with Christ baptism is the outward demonstration of your relationship to God in Christ Jesus when you are baptized you're identifying with Jesus Christ you've put on Jesus Christ notice also he says There's no distinction now in the kingdom of God between Jew and Greek. There's no distinction now between a slave person or a free person. There's no distinction now between male and female because you are all one in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on to say, you are Abram's seed. And that may not mean much to you, but... It means a lot to me. Because if I remember correctly, Abraham is called the father of faith. He is the head of the people of God. That doesn't mean he's Christ. It doesn't mean he's God. But insofar as the practical aspects of the kingdom of God here in the earth, Abraham was the top dog. Abraham was the man that began it all. God called Abraham out of Ur of Chaldees and he said, through you I am going to make for myself a particular people. A nation that I can call my own. And the Apostle Paul is saying here that in Christ Jesus, you now are included in that family. You now are not only a child of God but you're also now a member of a particular nation of people that belong to God. As long as you're in the earth you're a part of that family. Romans chapter 8 verses 15 through 17 For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out Abba, Father, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs of God, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we've suffered with Him, that we may also be glorified together. God is no longer to us the sovereign creator of the universe, though He is. He is no longer Elohim, El Elyon, He is no longer Adonai. He is no longer all of these other terms, these other names that people call him. He is father to me. And he's father to you. Now the Apostle Paul uses two terms, Abba and father. Abba is simply father in Aramaic. But by using these two terms together, he is stressing the importance of the intimacy of that relationship. Now, some would say that Abba, Father, means Daddy. Uh, that's stretching it a bit. But what it does mean is that God, as your Father, you have an intimate relationship with Him like you would have with a human father that loves you more than anything else in life. That's the relationship you have with the one whom we call God. Relationship. Think about it. I mean, have you ever just really sat down and thought about it? To be in Christ Jesus is to be a child of God. I am a child of God. You're a child of God. (laughs) Who cares if you're white, Anglo-Saxon, Protestant, or some other Stripe. Who cares if you're an American in English speaking? Who cares if you're a scholar or not? Who cares if you're wealthy or not? You're a child of God. That should mean more to you than anything else in the world to be a child of of the true and living God to be a child of the sovereign creator of the universe he who throughout the stars and the planets throughout all of the expanse of space millions upon millions if not billions of stars and planets in thousands upon thousands of galaxies that are so far away that we could never travel to those if if we could go ten times the speed of light we could never reach the outer regions of space, And set space is filled with a handiwork of God. And what is even more wonderful than all of that is the God who created all of this stuff knows me personally. And He has permitted me, through His Son Jesus Christ, to know him personally. We are His children. We have a relationship with Him. We were once strangers, alienated from Him because of sin, but in Christ Jesus, we're His children. We have a genuine relationship with Him. We live with Him because He lives in us. We talk to Him because He talks to us. We walk with Him because He walks with us. then there is a third a third aspect to being in christ jesus is practical to be in christ jesus is practical not to say that the other two points are theoretical or philosophical or even theological because in some ways they are but this is where this is where the rubber hits the road friends This is where we get down to brass tacks. Being in Christ Jesus has a practical aspect to it. A practical aspect to it. Being in Christ Jesus is positional, yes. In Christ Jesus, we're made spiritually alive and will never experience spiritual death. Understand that. Once the Holy Spirit of God makes you spiritually alive, you will never experience spiritual death. You'll never lose the salvation. You will never lose the relationship. You will always be spiritually alive forever. In John chapter 5, verse 24, Jesus said, Most assuredly I say to you, He who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life. For those of you who believe that you can lose your salvation, you have to retranslate the scripture. You would have to say, Jesus is saying, he who believes in me has temporary life or conditional life. That's not what Jesus said. You have eternal life, everlasting life and shall not come into judgment but has passed from death to life. Isn't that great? Can you rejoice in that? Huh? Can you be satisfied in your spirit that you know Jesus, you're in Christ Jesus, you have a relationship with God and nothing in this earth, nothing in this life can ever change that. You will never experience spiritual death. You will never experience separation from God. You will never experience the horrors of hell. You belong to Him. And you may very well say well I'm going through deep waters I'm going through trials I'm going through temptations I've sinned against God I've done things I shouldn't have done I've said things I shouldn't have said I've not done things I should have done That's okay I I can't hold on to God I can't hold on to that salvation Good for you You can't hold on to Him But He will never let go of you He will never let go of you You are His forever Positional It is also relational in Christ. Jesus, a person, is a child of God and can never be rejected or abandoned by God. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 5, let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have, for he himself has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. I preached that sermon probably 30 years ago now. Maybe I need to preach it again. I will never, is what it means. I will never, no, not ever, no, never, ever turn you away. Now he said this to Joshua in Deuteronomy, chapter 31, verse 6. And again in Joshua, chapter 1, verse 5. He said this to Solomon, king of Israel, in 1 Chronicles, chapter 28, verse 20. And Paul... I believe Paul wrote Hebrews. Paul is also saying it to the believers in the New Testament. He will never leave you, he will never forsake you. But then again, to be in Christ Jesus is practical. What does that mean? It means that you will never be perfect no matter how hard you try. And that doesn't mean you shouldn't try. Uh, We should be faithful. We should be obedient. We need to be walking with Christ daily. But understand, you will never be perfect. You will never be sinless in this life. And so when you do sin against God, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Don't say, well, I've sinned against God. I've lied or I've cheated or I've, you know, I've done these things and so... (laughs) You know, I I, God you know God will turn his back on me because I've done certain things I shouldn't have done. No. God knows you're never going to be perfect in this life. That's why he saved you by grace. That's what it means to be in Christ Jesus. You'll never be perfect. You may be a prodigal from time to time but you will never be an apostate. You may be a prodigal from time to time, but you will never be an apostate. What is an apostate? What does it mean to apostatize? What does it mean to be an apostate? An apostate is someone who professes to be a Christian. Listen, listen. It is someone who professes to be a Christian who seems to be a believer, who's often a member of a local church. He even participates in church life from time to time. But but he consciously and intentionally renounces his belief in Jesus Christ and turns his back on the Christian faith. That's what an apostate is. That's what an apostate is. In John, 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 through 20, the Apostle John writes, little children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard, the Antichrist is coming. Even now, many Antichrists have come, by which we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us. And I'm going to come back to that. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest, that none of them were of us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One. Now, this, this passage of Scripture says a lot. And I don't have a lot of time to get into a whole bunch of the stuff that's in here. But let me just simply point out he's not talking about church membership. When he says that they went out from us, he's not saying that they were a member of our church and they were actively involved in this, that, and the other, and, they, and you know, they were doing stuff and so on and so forth, but you know, they got crossways with somebody, or somebody didn't look at him straight in the eye, or they heard this, or they experienced that, and so they left. They left the church. That's that's no, that's not what John is referring to here. John is referring to the community of faith. He's referring to the community faith. When he says that they went out from us, but they were not of us, he is saying that they were a part of the fellowship, but they were never really a part of the community of faith. They were never really a part of the kingdom of God. They were never in Christ Jesus. They were not saved. And some of you have been hurt by churches who have uh, excommunicated you. They have kicked you out. They've told you never to come back again because you've done certain things that were against their doctrine or against their dogma. And so they have severed ties with you and sent you out like you were an apostate, like you were a non-believer. That's not what John is talking about. And the Bible never talks about that kind of situation in a true community of faith. They went out from us because it was becoming more and more apparent to them that they were not saved and they couldn't tolerate being in a community of faith anymore. But they went out that they might be made manifest so that their true intentions, their true spirituality might be uncovered, revealed. And how do we know? How do we know that? Because notice what the apostle says, that none of them were of us, but you have the anointing from the Holy One. John puts the, puts the issue right Right there. They were not anointed, which means they were not saved. To be anointed is to be called and to be set apart by God for His purposes, and they didn't have that. They were not saved. A true Christian will never be excommunicated from the community of faith. Never. They may withdraw membership from the church and there may be members in the church that don't associate or fellowship with them anymore, but that doesn't mean they're excommunicated from the community of faith, from the kingdom of God. No. An apostate is not a believer. Know that. An apostate is not a believer, never was a believer. Andy Nacelli, and in the cell he wrote, God preserves, quote, God preserves all genuine Christians as eternally secure. That's called preservation. And all genuine Christians will continue in the faith. That's perseverance. Let me state that again God preserves all genuine Christians as eternally secure, which is preservation. And all genuine Christians will continue, will continue in the faith. That is perseverance. Someone who once professed, and I stress the word professed, someone who once professed to be a Christian may become an apostate, but a genuine Christian cannot become apostate. Those who apostatize demonstrate that they were never truly genuine Christians. And again, I stress the word profess because you can profess yourself to be anything can't you i mean we live in a country where there's freedom of speech right <laughs> and you can call your, you can profess yourself to be anything but that doesn't necessarily make it true right it doesn't necessarily make it true there are people who profess to be christian who have no clue what it means to be Christian. A Christian can, and sometimes do, become a prodigal. Now the difference between an apostate and a prodigal, here's where you have to understand what these terms mean in Scripture. A prodigal is a Christian who walks away from Jesus Christ. Okay? Follow me here. A Christian who walks away from Jesus Christ wastes his resources by living a wild and unrestrained life. Certainly sounds like a non-Christian to me. But then is convicted by the Holy Spirit, repents of his sin, and returns to the Lord. That's the difference between an apostate and a prodigal. An apostate never will repent of sin and never will come to the Lord. A prodigal will. And you can't describe it any better than our Lord's story of the prodigal son. The prodigal son is given to us in Scripture. Jesus tells us the story of the prodigal son to give us comfort and to give us sustained joy in our lives that even when we do fail God and we do fail God, but even when we do fail God, we do not lose hope. God does not turn His back on us even though we may turn our back on Him. God, like the father of the prodigal son, waits and looks down the road for us to come back home to Him. And eventually that boy who was out in the pig pen eating the slop of the hogs came to his senses. That was the stirring of the Holy Spirit in his life. Got up out of the pig pen and walked home to daddy. And a prodigal will always be stirred by the Holy Spirit, repent of his sin, and come back to the father. So, You may very well ask, what does any of this have to do with joy? And you probably were wondering that, weren't you? Well, if you were wondering that, then you weren't paying attention. (laughs) Remember that joy is a state of being, it's not an emotion, or at least it's not based on emotion. It has emotional uh, sides to it, yes. But it is a state of being calm delight, a deep-seated satisfaction and contentment. Christian joy, biblical joy, godly joy is the result of being in Christ. No matter your circumstances, no matter your situation, if you're in Christ Jesus, you can continue to experience joy in your spirit. Being in Christ Jesus affords us all of the things that I've been talking about this morning. Being spiritually alive, being saved, being a new person, being in relationship and enjoying fellowship with a true and living God forever never being rejected or abandoned by God, never experiencing spiritual death in hell. If you're not rejoicing in these things, then you're either not in Christ Jesus or you're a prodigal from Christ Jesus. The fullness of joy that God intends for us to have is in Him through Christ Jesus. One final passage of Scripture, 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. You don't need to turn there, just listen. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. The Apostle Peter writes, Blessed be the God and father of our lord jesus christ who according to his abundant excuse me who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of jesus christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away reserved in the heavens for you who are kept by the power of god through faith Do you have a living hope this morning? And the word hope here means an assurance, a confidence. Do you have a living confidence this morning that you will be raised from the dead when the trumpet of God sounds? That you will have resurrected life in the kingdom of God. Do you have that assurance this morning? Well, I hope I do. That's not an assurance. Is your spiritual inheritance in heaven? And the spiritual spiritual inheritance that the Apostle is talking about here is eternal life. That is our inheritance from God. Is your spiritual inheritance in heaven where it cannot tarnish, where it cannot wear out, where it cannot be destroyed? Or is is your inheritance in hell where there will be dying forever are you secure in the power of God through faith in Christ Jesus to the end to the very end of your life here do you have that security in God's power to keep you though you may not have the power To keep yourself. If you have that living hope. If you have that spiritual inheritance. If you have that security in the power of God. He goes on to say, in this you greatly rejoice. You ought to have joy in your spirit. Because these things are true in you. In this you greatly rejoice. Though now for a little while if need be. You've been grieved by various trials Stand with me. David, come and lead us in a song, and we will be dismissed. Those of us in Christ have a lot to be thankful Amen. for, will we? Amen. May we Amen. simply sing. Thank